So like today, uh, I travel to quite a few different churches to, to preach and to share about Medhurst Ministries. And a few weeks ago, Esther, my youngest daughter, and I were traveling to Leeds. I've been there before, and that journey usually takes me in an hour and ten minutes. Often I'll set off a bit earlier to give me time to stop for a, a coffee and sometimes a cheeky egg McMuffin from McDonald's. But this morning I was pushed for time and I set off only allowing myself an hour and ten minutes to get there on time. By the time we got to Weatherby Turnoff, we were making good time and I thought we still might have time to get a, a coffee and a milkshake from McDonald's. But as we hit the road that takes us on the last 15 miles, I ended up getting stuck by some literal Sunday drivers. There were seven cars in a row doing between 30 and 40 mile an hour on a 60 mile an hour road. I was furious and I was hoping that these cars would turn off. I started muttering and shuntering to myself, thinking why is it that whenever you're in a rush that you're always stuck behind people who can't drive properly? I started uh, saying that they shouldn't be allowed on the road, these people who are more dangerous, who go slow than people who go fast. And I started getting angry that these people had inconvenienced me and had scuppered my plans. I rang the pastor and said that I was going to be late and I was really, really angry and frustrated with these people in front of me. And then soon that frustration turned to conviction and I had to turn to Esther and say, I'm sorry, it's not their fault, it's my fault. If I'd have set off in time, I'd have had plenty of time to, to get to the church. These people aren't responsible for me being bad with time. I was embarrassed at how annoyed I'd become over something that is really quite trivial. It only cost me six minutes. I still arrived at the church with plenty of time to preach. Yet my behaviour suggested that these people were stopping me from getting to a life-saving operation. Often when my plans get interrupted, often when I'm faced with a trial or with trouble, no matter how big or how small, my reactions can often make things worse. And very, very rarely do my reactions ever make things better. I wonder if you ever get like that, or is it just me who doesn't control themselves well when faced with a problem? Do you ever find yourself after facing trouble wishing that you'd handle that situation better? Well, as Christians, how should we handle times of trouble? How should we handle times of struggle? How should we handle trials? How should we react to the trouble that everyone will face during their life? Well, fortunately, we have God's word and today we're going to look at God's word and see how he says we should respond in times of trouble. So if you would, please turn with me to James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 2 to verse uh, 8. And just before we go there, we'll, we'll just look at a little bit of the context about this Bible. James is thought to be the brother of Jesus. He was Jesus's brother, yet when Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, James didn't believe him. He doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. But even though he doubted who Jesus was initially, 
after the resurrection and meeting with the risen Christ, his, his brother, his earthly brother and his saviour, he ended up becoming one of the most faithful of his disciples and he was one of the pillars of the early church. He was so influential in the lives of the early church. This book or this letter was originally written to the early Jewish church. And this church was scattered across Europe and the Middle East and facing extreme persecution. They were also struggling with temptation and they were also struggling with sin. And, and, and James was writing to these people to, to be an antidote, to help them with their struggles of persecution, to help them with temptation and to help them with sin. And James was a perfect man to do this because like the church that was doubting and struggling with the faith, James had been there. Yet he didn't stay there. He was a man who once doubted and then was a man who had the nickname of Camel Knees. And the reason for that was it is thought that he was constantly on his knees praying that he had calluses. Regardless of how true this story was, what we see is the author of this letter James, the brother of Jesus, was a man who went from doubt and disbelief to a man of prayer and faith and action. His faith was so active that he, he died for his faith. He was martyred, he was killed, he was murdered. And the reason he writes this letter is, like he went from doubt to faith, he wants the church then and us today to do the same thing to have our doubts alleviated and to have our hearts strengthened and filled with faith. And verse 2 starts by saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word this morning. Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you for your word. And we, we ask you, Lord, that as we study your word this morning, you will speak to us, you will challenge us, and you will equip us to be more like your son, Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen. So verse 2 starts off by saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Understood correctly, this verse can be so encouraging to us when we're struggling and it can be used to encourage others. But only if we understand it correctly. So before we find out what this verse actually means, what we're going to do is look at and find out what it doesn't mean. First, I want to clarify that this verse does not mean that when we face trials and troubles, we should laugh and joke and say, oh, it doesn't matter. We shouldn't be happy when we're suffering. God is not saying that 
When we face troubles, we should never show emotion or be sad or be angry. That we should never grieve or that we should never be heartbroken. God is not saying this through his word. And we can evidence this by looking at the perfect life and the, the perfect ministry of Jesus. We can look at how Jesus faced trials and wept and suffered like we suffer and we weep. In God's word we see how Jesus wept and grieved for the dead and those who had lost a loved one. We see this in John eleven thirty two to 35. It says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus wept as he thought about how the Jews had continued to reject God and would face God's wrath in Luke 19.41. Jesus weeps, it says, as, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The grief and, and sorrow and the pain of Jesus was also prophesied in Isaiah 53.3. It says... And describes that Jesus of being despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and pain and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we did not appreciate his worth or esteem him. We also see Jesus suffer from fear. We see that Jesus was not just afraid but he was overcome with sadness in Matthew 26 36 to 39 it says then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them sit here while I go over there and pray he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled then he said to them my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then in Matthew 27 verse 46, we see that Jesus is so overcome with pain and sorrow that he feels abandoned by God. It says about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's word shows us that Jesus faced numerous trials. God's word shows us that Jesus suffered and, and because of that suffering, at times it caused him to weep, at, at times it caused him to be exhausted, at times it caused him to grieve, to get angry and to pity others. There was even a time when he felt like he couldn't continue, when he feared for his own pain and persecution on the cross, and he felt abandoned by God. The reality for all of us 
is that we will all face trials and struggles in our life. But the question is, how should we respond to them? This passage and this verse wasn't written to dismiss our pain. It wasn't written to make us feel guilty when we struggle. And it certainly wasn't written for us to use it to dismiss the pain of others who are struggling. The reason it was written was to offer us hope in our time of suffering. It was written to offer us eternal joy during our temporary despair. It is right and it is proper and it is expected that we will experience trials and we will experience suffering. And this in turn will sometimes lead to our emotional and spiritual pain and sometimes agony. So how do we apply this passage? How can we find joy in the midst of our suffering? Well, turn with me to Hebrews 12, verse 2. The way that we can apply joy to our suffering is by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus experienced emotional, physical and spiritual and mental pain. Jesus knew what it was like to, to have anguish in your life. He knew sadness. He knew anger. He knew fear and grief. Yet despite this, in his darkest hour, he was still able to find joy. Jesus found joy during his temporary suffering in a fallen and broken world. A world in which he was falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was falsely arrested, he was beaten, he was tortured and he was cruelly killed over hours. He endured a long, humiliating and agonising death on the cross. And the way and the reason he could endure this was because of the joy of knowing that his temporary suffering would lead to his eternal glory. You see, the perfect life, the perfect death and the perfect resurrection of Jesus has paid the price for sin. He has defeated death and he has paved the way for himself to sit at the right-hand side of his father as he rules his people a redeemed, forgiven and adopted people. A people, his church, who will share in the inheritance of an eternal kingdom. A kingdom of perfection, a kingdom without sin, a, a kingdom without sadness and a kingdom without suffering. A kingdom without death and a, a kingdom without disease. A kingdom of eternal joy. Eternal joy for God's people as they worship and enjoy their saviour for eternity. You see, all of us will face trials and struggles in our lives. The question is, how should we respond to them? The Bible teaches us that God is sovereign. 
And that means that God is in control of all things. And we see how God used the suffering of Jesus to rescue mankind from sin, to defeat death, and to glorify Jesus at his right-hand side. That was the joy that was set before Jesus, the gospel. And that is the joy that is set before us despite our temporary sufferings. Our joy doesn't come from the trials. We are supposed to cheer when the boiler breaks during the coldest spell of the year. We aren't supposed to be happy that you crash your car twice in a matter of days. You aren't supposed to laugh when a family member is seriously ill. These are three things that have happened to us as a family in the last year. We were annoyed when the boiler broke and it was freezing cold. I was angry at myself for crashing the car twice. It made me worry about money and possible dementia, the fact that I could do it so carelessly two days in a row. And I was sad and I was frightened and emotionally worn out when we were faced with a family illness. Yet during these trials, during these problems, during these emotional roller coasters, we still had joy. A joy amongst the fear. A joy amongst the frustration and a joy amongst the tears. We clung to the joy, the joy of knowing and trusting in the gospel. Because the gospel reminds us that God is in control even when the world seems to be out of control. The gospel reminds us that our trials are temporary. The gospel reminds us that one day our suffering will end. The gospel reminds us that if we cling to this hope and the grace of God, that he will help us persevere. That he will help us persevere and endure through our temporary struggles in order that we can enjoy his eternal joy in his kingdom for eternity, sharing in his glory. Because all of us will face trials and struggles in our lives. The, the question is, how will we respond to them? Because only a sadist or a madman will find joy in suffering, especially if he doesn't have the hope that that suffering will one day end, that that suffering will one day be eclipsed by something far better and far greater. You see, the only way that we can have hope and joy in the times of suffering is by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We can follow his example of endurance by trusting in his endurance, the endurance that paved the way for us to access that throne room of grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy comes from our trials because it reminds us of our weakness and our need for Jesus. Our suffering reminds us that God is in control and that he is the only eternal security that we have. When the temporary things of life that we love and that we rely on fail, we are reminded that Jesus never will. When we feel like we can't go on, he gives us the strength to carry on and he gives us an example to persevere through a joy that will complete us. Verses 3 to 5 continue. 
It says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. When faced with trials, when faced with suffering, when we realise that the things that we, real, uh, that we rely on are failing, when we realise that we are not in control, when we realise that we cannot continue in our own strength, that in fact when we realise we've got no strength left, we have no option but to drop to our knees in prayer and ask God for the wisdom to help us deal with the situation that we find ourselves in. That we drop to our knees and ask God to give us the strength to persevere. Knowing and trusting that he is generous and gives to all. The good news is that God promises to give us the wisdom. The wisdom that we need not to necessarily solve our problems. But to persevere with them. To respond like Jesus would to them. You see, the trials that we are faced with are used by God to make us more like Jesus. As Christians, it should be our ambition not to only know Jesus, but to reflect him. And if it's our ambition to reflect Jesus, we can take joy in our trials because we know that God uses our trials to make us more like him. Whenever we are faced with struggles, Whatever that struggle might be, whether it's fear, whether it's betrayal, whether it's pain, death, grief, or even disappointment, we can reflect Jesus by trusting in the sovereignty of God and crying out to him in prayer. Because when we face trials and struggles in our lives, the question is, how should we respond to them? And God is quite clear that we should respond to our trials and struggles like Jesus did. When I crashed the car twice in quick succession, I cried out to God. Not like Jesus did, but in self-pity. Why, God, I asked. I've been good this week. I've prepared a sermon. I've read my Bible every day. I wasn't short with the kids. I felt like I didn't deserve these problems. I was gutted. I was confused. I was disappointed and I was frustrated. I initially felt stupid for crashing the car. And then I felt stupid for forgetting the gospel. The Bible is clear. It's clear that even though we might face trials because of the consequences of our sin, we also face trials because of the consequence of living in a fallen, broken world. Sometimes we're faced with trials not of our own making. Sometimes we're faced with trials because of the sin of others. And sometimes we're faced with trials because of the brokenness of the world in which we live in. As Christians, we need to remind ourselves that we are not immune to the trials of life. And we must remind ourselves that when we do find ourselves being disciplined by God, it is only because he loves us and he wants to benefit us. After crashing the car and feeling sorry for myself and having a little pity party, I repented of being an idiot 
And then I asked God what he was trying to teach me in this situation. I asked him what could I learn and how could I deal with it in a way that reflects Jesus rather than my usual stupid self. You see, James has shown us that every trial we face is an opportunity to become more like Jesus. First, by trusting that God is in control. And secondly, by crying out to him in prayer. To ask for the wisdom that he gives to those he loves with abundance. We need to ask ourselves how this knowledge will affect us. How will we respond the next time we're faced with a trial? Whether it's being faced with an annoying church member who does your head in, whether it's the betrayal of a friend, whether it's financial issues, whether it's the death of a loved one, or even your own illness. We need to understand that God is giving us these trials as an opportunity to become more like Jesus. And we need to pray that when faced with these trials, we will respond by fixing our eyes upon him. Not only looking at him, but trying our best to reflect him, to be like him, and to respond like him. The way we can do this is by seeking joy that only comes from trusting that God is in control. By trusting that God is in control and falling on our knees, trusting that God will give us the wisdom that we need to deal with our struggles well. To trust that he will give us the wisdom that encourages us, the wisdom that will comfort us, the wisdom that will sustain us through our darkest trials. The verses go on and say, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Remember, James showed us in the previous verses that our ambition should be not only to, to know Jesus, but to reflect him, especially in our times of struggle. But sometimes we can find our ambitions to be anything other than reflecting Jesus. Sometimes our ambitions are for other things in life. Sometimes our ambitions are for comfort, for success, for family, for academic achievement, even for ministry. But what James is telling us is that when we are ambitious for anything other than Jesus, these ambitions can compete with our desire to reflect Jesus. And when we desire to be anything other than a reflection of Jesus, this is when we can become tossed around like a wave by the wind. We can become like a boat being tossed about in a storm. We can become unstable in everything that we do. I wonder, have you, have you ever had a good day? A good day where you've been excited about your life and where it is going. Maybe you're excited about your family or your faith or your Bible studies or your prayer life, even your church life. Maybe it's your education or it's your job. Have you ever had a day where everything just feels so good? Only for something to happen. 
something unexpectedly out of the blue that scuppers your plans. Something that takes something precious from you. Not only have you had something precious taken from you, but it has destroyed your outlook on life. Have you ever thought, what's the point? Have you ever thought, I've had enough? Have you ever felt like giving up on everything you've planned and aimed for, wanting to retreat away from the world and bury your head in the sand, defeated, dejected? Responding like that can be a, a regular battle for me. Sometimes I, I feel that I've faced so many trials in my life that I can't face anymore. Sometimes I think, what's the point? I have spiritual amnesia and forget how God has guided me and, and grown me and strengthened me in the trials that have gone past. And I just look at the trial in front of me and I feel defeated. Sometimes I respond well. Sometimes I, I repent quickly. But sadly, many other times I behave double-mindedly. I doubt the wisdom of God. And instead of reflecting Jesus, I reflect the boat being smashed and dashed against the rocks in a storm. You see, we will all face trials and we will all face struggles in our lives. But the question is, how as Christians should we respond to them? You see, doubt comes when we focus on our suffering instead of focusing on our saviour. It's easily done. Remember, there's nothing wrong with tears. There's nothing wrong with sadness and there's, there's nothing wrong with grief. God encourages us to, to cry out to him, but in faith, trusting that he loves us. Trusting that regardless of the strength of the storm, that the boat isn't going to sink. Trusting that he's in control of the storm, that he's using the storm to make us more like Jesus. And that one day when Jesus returns, these storms will stop forever. That the winds will stop and that the sun will rise. And then we'll have an eternity of peace. Then we'll have an eternity of rest with our Saviour. And the question of us, the question for us this morning is, where are we today? Are we trusting in God's sovereignty? Are we trusting that God is in control? Are we trusting and seeking his wisdom? Do we trust that he uses the trials and struggles of this world for our good, to shape us and make us more like his son Jesus? Or are we doubting? Do we feel like that boat being tossed about in the ocean? If you are struggling, if you are doubting today, if you face doubt in the future, be encouraged. Be encouraged because you are in good company. The Apostle Peter, when faced with a, a literal storm, showed great faith and he, he stepped out of the boat to meet with Jesus. But as the winds rose and as the waves crashed, he started to doubt and he started to sink and reached out to his Lord and Saviour in fear and in doubt. John the Baptist, who preached that Jesus was the Messiah who, 
ushered Jesus into the nation of the Jews. Once he was in prison and he was facing trials and struggles of his own, doubted that Jesus was the Messiah that he proclaimed about. Many of the 11 disciples in the early church, including the famous apostle Doubting Thomas, when faced with the trial of the crucifixion, doubted God's wisdom, doubted the resurrection, and needed confirmation of the scars of the risen Jesus. As we saw at the start of this sermon, even James, the author of this book, doubted. Yet he faced the trial of being persecuted and killed for his faith. All of us doubt. All of us are plagued by fear and at times think logically rather than spiritually. Yet fortunately for us, even though Jesus was afraid, even though Jesus was grieved, even though Jesus felt pain physically, spiritually, emotionally and mentally, even though he cried, even though he felt abandoned, he never doubted. Jesus, always trusting in God's wisdom. Jesus, always faithful. Jesus, always perfecting the faith so that it can be credited to our accounts. So that we can first know his salvation, his adoption and his sanctification, which means we will be made more and more like him. A sanctification that helps us to reflect Jesus more and more each day. And the joy of knowing that even when we fail, even when we doubt, we can trust in his mercy. We can seek the wisdom that God the Father promises to give us in abundance. So this morning, when we're asked with that question, how should we react when faced with trials, we should react like Jesus, but trusting in that the knowledge, if we don't have the strength to do that, we can trust in the fact that he acted perfectly and his actions are credited to our accounts. So let's pray that our response to the struggles of life to fix our eyes on Jesus, to reflect him, through praying and trusting in the wisdom of our loving, merciful and generous Father in heaven. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come...